The following seniors talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly from his home in Brooklyn, New York. The talk took place in the context of a one continuous thread retreat which brought together home practitioners and Zen Mountain Monastery residents over a week-long meditation. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our online programs, please visit us at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. So good afternoon. So this is from the, uh, the third Karmapa. Self-manifestation, which has never existed as such, is erroneously seen as an object. Through ignorance, self-awareness is mistakenly experienced as I. Through attachment to this duality, we are caught in the conditioned world. May the root of confusion be found. So my name is Yunin. Um, I know a lot of you, but not all of you. Uh, so it's it's nice to see you, and hopefully I'll meet those of you I haven't met before. This is a bit of an experiment uh, for me. I know I know people have been doing it before. Um, uh, so thank you for uh, um, letting me experiment on you. <laughs> um, and I also just also briefly want to thank um, uh, my partner, my wife, uh, Sokyo, who generously uh, cleared out so that there's not a Spanish lesson going on in the background while, while I'm talking to you. So what I want to talk about today is Hinayana practice. So the, the theme of this ongo, of course, is bodhisattva, which is a Mahayana uh, concept, a Mahayana practice. Um, but really, it's, it's very closely related to the Hinayana. I originally was going to speak about the three turnings, of, which is um, Hinayana, Mahayana, and then Vajrayana, or Buddhayana. Uh, but I, I, I quickly found that that was a little bit too ambitious, and, and I was working on it, and I had a whole talk where I was still just working on the Hinayana. Um, so I'll, I'll maybe get us to the, the, the entry into the Mahayana um, by the end of the talk, and then the rest of the ango can take it from there. And so before I, before, the other thing I want to say about, about Hinayana, I've, as I was working on it, um, I've been feeling very, um, a need for a connection with that, that um, really basic, fundamental, earthy, grounded Hinayana part of practice. So, uh, I, I practice. I'm here in Brooklyn, and I, I practice a lot, mostly at the uh, at the Brooklyn Temple, which has been closed uh, since since March, of course. And so, like everyone, you know, so much is happening online, and I, I've really felt uh, been like probably most of you missing that really sort of grounded, physical, solid contact with the foundation. Uh, the foundation of practice and the physical uh, buildings and grounds, the, the contact with the Sangha, uh, the immersion and the uh, schedule, which we can make do a little bit uh, with online, but it's not quite the same. Um, it makes me appreciate how much unseen support I get from the buildings and grounds, the Sangha, the schedule. 
And so I, I've been feeling a really strong need to, to get in touch with that uh, foundation. And so I, I think probably that's why I was drawn to this topic. And of course, that's 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 happening with our larger city sangha. We've been and there's been some some wonderful developments. We've been experimenting with sitting out in the public parks a lot. Uh, we've started um, holding talks uh, where it's it's not just teachers or seniors, but but sangha members, uh, students. Some of them are not students. Are actually giving talks and talking about their experience of practice, which is a wonderful uh, thing, you know. So some good, some good things have come out of this. And I feel also uh, that I've been feeling that, and of course, in a larger society as a country, we've been, we're being forced by circumstances to really look at certain foundational ideas about who we are and what we're doing. You know, do I, do I want to live in a democracy? Do I want to live in a, a country where all people are treated with kindness and respect. I mean, these are, these are real questions because, you know, as Buddhist practitioners, we know what we're supposed to answer, but, but it's a real question because if we answer yes, that we do want those things, then the next question is, well, then what does that require of me? Because it does require something. So, so let me just uh, backtrack a little bit, and I want to talk about, although I'm going to focus on the Hinayana, I want to talk about a little bit of the, um, the context of the three turnings. So the three turnings, of course, are the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. And it, you can think of these as sort of stages of development uh, from the, the basic to the more you know, expansive or rarefied. But in another sense, I think that, that like so much of this practice, it doesn't necessarily work in that linear fashion. They're all operating at the same time. It's not that you, you know, you, you finish your Hinayana studies and you graduate and then you drop that or, you know, um, uh, you toss it away and then move on to the Hinayana. Uh, I think it's more like, it's more like a tree where you can talk about the trunk or the branches and the leaves or the roots. And it doesn't really make sense to talk about one as being separated or independent of the other. They all work together. So to get into the specifics, the Hinayana is, it, it literally means the lesser vehicle, or it's sometimes translated as the individual vehicle that emphasizes uh, liberation of the self. Uh, as, as the teachings, Hinayana teachings are often, uh, uh, teachings that are classified as Hinayana are usually the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Twelve Fold Chain of Independent uh, Causation, Interdependent Arising. The Mahayana is the greater or universal vehicle. So uh, this emphasizes the liberation, not just of the self, but of all beings. It's the Bodhisattva path and the, uh, the six paramitas, which we're studying in this ango. And then finally, the Vajrayana is the, uh, the esoteric or uh, adamantine or thunderbolt vehicle. And it's often associated with Tibetan practice, but, but um, there are, as I understand, I don't know a lot about this, but there are elements of that in, in our tradition as well. Um, and it's associated with the direct encounter, direct working with the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance, and transforming them into 
compassion, wisdom, and enlightenment. So this, this teaching of the three turnings uh, originated in the Yogacara school, and it was, uh, it's taken up and elaborated by, by various different Buddhist schools. Um, and as I said, it can also, I'm going to talk about the practice aspect, but it can also be uh, seen as sort of a, uh, a roadmap for the establishment of, a, of an enlightened society. So Robert Thurman speaks about this as, uh, um, uh, say, the Hinayana practice is associated with um, uh, monastic practice, and it emphasizes renunciation and discipline. And then after some centuries, when that became really established in India, uh, it was ripe for the Mahayana, which moved the practice out of the monastic base into the lay society and emphasized an ethic of, of love and compassion. And then once that was in place, uh, the, the teachings moved out into, uh, into marginal uh, social areas. So, for example, in the Vimalakirti uh, Sutra, it talks about how Vimalakirti even enters uh, into bars and brothels to teach. In terms of practice, Hinayana is, is uh, the, the primary teaching, I guess, is that the self is, is empty of inherent existence. You know, that's that second line of the, uh, the poem that I quoted. Through ignorance, self-awareness is mistakenly experienced as an I. In the Mahayana, that moves that out a little bit further and focuses on all objects, all phenomena, all dharma are empty of inherent existence. Self-manifestation, which has never existed as such, is erroneously seen as an object. And then the Vajrayana kind of comes back to the, the formless form of all dharmas, uh, of the, the sort of which are radiant with Buddha nature. So the, the one sort of really pithy teaching of the Buddha is things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. And things are not as they seem is sort of the first two turnings. And then not a, nor are they otherwise takes us back to the third turning. You know, I, I, when I think of this, I often, I, it's helpful for me to think that there, maybe there's a zeroth turning as well, which is what we do before we even come to practice, where, where all objects have inherent permanent essence that uh, that exists independently and separately from every other object and, and phenomenon. So you could say uh, uh, things are exactly as they seem, nor are they otherwise. And this is, and because things are just what they are, we don't need to look any deeper. There's no need to study. It's just self-evident. Uh, uh, maybe uh, grounded in ignorance, but but that is a view that I think we always carry with us also. So then the Hinayana is teaching that the self is empty. So, so the practice is really looking deeply at the self. And so we turn inward and really, really study, who am I? What is the self really? You know, I think about this in terms of, uh, of masks, not, not the, uh, the masks that everyone's wearing these days, but the uh, sort of theatrical masks, um, the masks that we put on, the, uh, the persona that we carry around with us uh, to relate to the world and, and to relate to ourselves as well. We put on these masks uh, or we have them put on us and then we forget that, that we're wearing them often. And maybe at some point those masks are useful in our development. Uh, they help us for some particular situation, but 
often we outgrow them and then we're stuck with them and they no longer serve that purpose. So we get to a place where we desperately want to remove these masks uh, and yet we're afraid to because we're afraid of what's underneath them. Um, we're afraid that other people will see who I really am and we think, well, that's, I know that's not very pretty and so I want to keep this mask on. Or maybe it feels like I can't take this mask off because it's not safe because of my situation. Or maybe I want to take this mask off, but other people don't want me to because that makes them uncomfortable. Uh, When I was living at the monastery a number of years ago, uh, I don't know if people talk about this still, but we we, we used to to joke about uh, Zen high, as in Zen high school, uh, where people often have the experience in residence of being uh, thrown back on that period of, of you know, adolescence where you're experimenting with different identities and trying to figure out, you know, what works for you to make your way in the world. And about the, the, the environment of intensive practice, it doesn't feel, you, you, when you're honest with yourself, you often feel that these ways of being aren't quite genuine, and yet you don't know what else to do. And so it's very, very clumsy and awkward. And, and so people are, you know, people come to do this, uh, profound spiritual practice and, and get enlightened and all of a sudden it's like I'm back in high school again. You know. I was also thinking of uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the um uh, the cartoon Scooby Doo. Like they uh at the end of it it's it's this for those of you who don't know it's this group of kids drive around in this mystery machine and invariably they they break down in front of some old mansion or abandoned hotel that has this uh, monster problem. So there's a, I don't know, a space ogre or a zombie or something running around scaring everyone. And the kids investigate and they find clues. And eventually they apprehend the monster and, and they tear off the mask of the monster and they find out underneath it's the, uh, I don't know, it's the crooked caretaker who's running a smuggling ring or something like that. You know. And there's one episode where I thought this was great. They, they take off the first mask and they think it's like Mr. Jenkins, the caretaker, and then they take off that mask and then there's another mask that comes off. They keep coming off. In the, uh, in the tradition of the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, we often, we often um, uh, there's a version of what he said when he, when he attained Anuttara Samyaksambodhi that we often repeat here. Um, uh, it's wonderful, wonderful. I attain the way together with all beings in the great earth. But there's a there's a Theravada um, version of that as well, uh, which I, I believe it's in the Dhammapada. And according to that tradition, when the Buddha um, awakens, he says, O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again. Your rafters are broken and your ridgepole is shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving." As I, as I uh, think of my own um, experience of looking for this householder, if I, I think back on it uh, over the years, you know, in retrospect, I find that it's, uh, it's, it's in some way, it's, it's, it's always been in some way tied up with, uh, with a lot of the issues of uh, uh, race and gender that we've been looking at uh, very deliberately as a sangha, this ango. 
Um, in other words, you know, and you could think of these as masks. Uh, you could also think of it as karma, of course. And I remember when I started, I, I started, I got beginning instruction at the, I think it was the San Francisco Zen Center in the, in the very early 90s. And I would, I would go there and I was really drawn to this practice, but something was blocking me. And, and I think it was, what was blocking me is that I was, I was afraid to look at my own karma. I was afraid to look uh, at the mask and underneath the mask, what was there. And specifically it had to do, uh, a, a part of it had to do with uh, being a white person, being a white man in the United States and what all, what, what that entailed. You know, I was, uh, and, and this was also right about the time that the, um, some of you I'm sure remember the, uh, the Rodney King uh, riots incident. Rodney King was a black man who was, uh, arrested by the LAPD and, and beaten by four cops mercilessly, and it was it was caught on film. And this was one of the first uh, cases where it was really caught. And it went to trial, and later all four uh, police uh, officers were acquitted by an all-white jury. And it, LA just exploded at this time. And I was living in California, and it you know it really had an impact on me. I actually went down to Los Angeles probably somewhat naively, but wanting to, to do something. And I was living in a car for a week trying to find something that made sense to address this. And I, I, I couldn't find anyone who, who seemed to know what to do or what was going on. You know, not long after that, I ended up going to Germany. Uh, and I think uh, in some sense that I wasn't really aware of, it was a way of... Um, trying to escape uh, from the karma of, of, of race in the United States. It felt just so large and, and overwhelming that I couldn't deal with it. And so I escaped to a different place. Um, and a place that had its own difficult historical karma, obviously. But it wasn't my karma, or so I thought at the time. I don't even know that I thought that. It was just sort of this urge to, to get out. And I was, it was there that I really started Zen practice. I was able to, to, it was helpful for me. I guess it was what I needed to do in some ways, even if it was avoiding. So I'm very grateful for that. And I was, you know, just now thinking back on that time, I had a number of, um, I'm very grateful for the way so much help or assistance that I, that I received there. Um, and I also had a number of, of encounters that, that kind of stuck with me. And just, just one that I, that I wanted to share, I was um, right around the time that I uh, started practicing really intensively. And I, I've spoken about this before. I got really sick with a, with a stomach bug and I ended up in the hospital uh, in Germany. And, uh, I mean, the first night I was there, I was kind of on, I don't know if I was sedated or I, I wasn't totally clear, but, but the next morning, um, there was like three of us in the room and one of the people in the room that was there with me had, had died overnight. Uh, it was an older guy. And there was another older man that was in the other bed and, and he started talking to me. He was maybe around 80 and he, he learned that I was American and so he quickly began uh, talking about his experience in the Second World War. And he was, um, 
I felt that he was afraid of, of death because it was becoming very real, obviously with this guy who just died next to him in the bed. And, and I really, I remember one of the things he said to me was I was on the Eastern Front. And it was like he was telling me something and trying to, I, I very quickly got the sense that he wanted me to forgive him. You know, I got the sense that he had, had either witnessed or, or participated in something um, terrible. And, and I knew enough, you know, at that time that, that the Eastern Front was where a lot of the, um, the really uh, the worst fighting was or where the, where the death camps were, too. And he, he was just almost pleading with me to forgive him. I guess I, I, I felt that he, he thought that as, a, as an American, as a representative of this, this country that helped defeat the Nazis, that I had some sort of ability to, to absolve him. And I, I, I felt that I don't have that. I didn't feel that I, it was in my, my right to judge him either, but I didn't feel that I could absolve him. I remember him pleading with me saying, like, you know, you don't know what it was like at that time. And thinking back on that, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely true. I don't know what it was like at that time. You know, I, if I think about that, I think, you know, I hope that I would do the right thing in those circumstances, but I don't know. I haven't experienced that. And I was, as, as I was remembering this, I, I, I thought of uh, Sayan's talk from a few weeks ago. Maybe some of you saw it. She spoke about the, the five remembrances. And uh, I thought of the last remembrance, which is uh, my only true possessions are my actions. I cannot escape their consequences. Dida Roshi used to say, an unexamined, an unexamined mind is a dangerous thing. When I first heard that, I thought of, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to the other people around. But it's also dangerous to me to have my mind unexamined. Because um, I am the heir to my actions. So we've been, uh, we've been trying to look at some of these issues around race in particular at some of these, uh, what is whiteness group? We, we have one at the temple that we've been uh, doing for a couple of years now. Um, thanks in particular to, uh, to Busan and Tochako. Um, and so we've been looking at the self that is white, you know, what is it actually? You know, in my own experience, it's not been it's been difficult to see this particular mask. Uh, There's all sorts of distractions and I can, including spiritual practice, and I can just check out and not look at it if I choose not to. To the extent that I have looked at it, I feel I've had to to go against the current. It's it's had to be very deliberate. In uh, in 1962, uh, James Baldwin wrote, a vast amount of the energy that goes into what we call the Negro problem is produced by the white man's profound desire not to be judged by those who are not white, not to be seen as he is. And at the same time, a vast amount of white anguish is rooted in the white man's equally profound need to be seen as he is, to be released from the tyranny of his mirror. I thought this, you know, the language is a bit uh, dated, but, uh, uh, for me, this this rings absolutely true. This is you know it's, it's uncanny how how in some sense he I feel like he sees some aspect of me more clearly than I see of myself. 
when I think about, you know, if I, if I look at that particular mask or any mask, uh, what begins to, to, what I begin to see is, is the raw material of ego. So, of course, greed, anger, ignorance, pettiness, envy, arrogance, self-doubt. And Trumpa uh, compares this experience to, to working with compost, the raw material of ego. He says, you know, it may not smell great, but uh, actually it's very fertile. It's very workable. You can grow stuff in it once you begin to, to, to get your fingers in it and work with it. You know, it's hard work, but... You know, another uh, thing that's come up, a question, I guess, it has been in the air lately, uh, is, you know, about these sort of introspective, uh, you know, maybe affinity groups or, or maybe, you know, white uh, anti-racist groups in particular is you know, how useful is that? Should we be focused more on maybe political activity? Uh, over the summer, our group, you know, this this came up a good bit. Uh, we had a very spirited discussion about it. Um, I think it's a great question. Uh, when I work with it, I, you know, I've been, I found it helpful to return to the uh, um, uh, the teaching of the Buddha that that karma is created through uh, three wheels the wheel of body, the wheel of mouth, and the wheel of mind, the three wheels of karma. Or you might say action, speech, and thought. And because karma is created by the three wheels, it can also be liberated through the three wheels. And so a lot of the practices that we do uh, traditionally, and as we uh, begin this, this, um, this work, uh, around uh, difference and uh, is is um, works in this way. So if you think about it, uh, how do we you know transform the the karma of mind of thought? One way of zazen is zazen, of course. There's also specific meditation exercises where you you invoke or visualize either a demon or someone that you have some trouble with, and you nourish it. You visualize this process of feeding it. You know, but you could also think of working with mind as, say, say reading to educate yourself to really find out about the history. In terms of the wheel of mouth, you know, traditionally we work with this through liturgy. In some sense, that's what's happening in liturgy is we're invoking um, beneficial karma of words and invoking them. You know, in some sense, I think of some of these uh, groups, these discussion groups, as, as another way of, of working with the karma of speech or mouth. And then there's the karma of action. So, you know, we do prostrations. We do lots of prostrations. And that, that is a, a, a way of working with the karma of the body, the wheel of body. And it may be, you know, if it feels right and appropriate to you, I mean, it feels, I'm doing some of this, is to, uh, say, be politically active. It could also be a way of, of liberating the karma of, of the body. You know, I recently watched a, uh, a Zoom conversation between uh, Res- Resma Menachem, who's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, and uh, Reverend, Reverend uh, Angel Kyoto Williams, who's a, a Zen teacher. 
and they're both they're both black. And uh, in this, they were talking about, uh, well, I guess karma, and the karma of of these uh, of race. And uh, Resma observed, he said, is you know, it's necessary. It's going to be necessary for white people to create a, a physical culture of white anti-racism. And I found that really interesting. And I was, was wondering, you know, what, what does that actually mean yet? He also said it doesn't yet exist. It's going to take some time. Uh, and I was wondering what he meant by physical culture. But then as I was watching the conversation, you know, even over the Zoom, I, you know, I could feel this sort of palpable warmth between the two of them. And I was thinking back to, you know, we've been doing this stuff around in some iteration or other in the MRO for about 10 or 15 years. A number of years ago, we had a, a, a group at the temple where we, we had a large group of about 40 people. And at one point we broke up into you know, white and black groups, but we were in the same space and we were talking. And several people noticed that the, uh, uh, the POC group, there was a lot of laughter and they seemed to be enjoying themselves. And the white group felt just very silent and very grim. You know, it's like we didn't know how to, how to do this. I think we're maybe very slowly getting a little better at it. Um, you know, in some sense, I've been talking about masks. In some sense, uh, all of these masks are arbitrary. You know, they're not fundamentally real. If you look under it, if you look really closely and then keep looking and keep looking, there's no one underneath the masks. There's just more masks. But some of those masks are bound with bound up with very, very powerful, very ancient karma. And so, you know, while these identities, they may not inherently exist, but I think we ignore them at our peril and at the peril of others, importantly. So we have a responsibility to look at them. But it seems not to be the case that we can reach some uh, fundamental basement uh, substratum, you know, where the last mask is. You know, even the, the mask of no self is just another mask. You know, you look under that mask and you're right back in the world. And so, in some sense, at this point, the task becomes to see through all of the masks at once, my masks, other people's masks. And I think this is sort of where we get to the, uh, the entry into the Mahayana. This Sunday, uh, Shubhan Roshi quoted the, uh, the Diamond Sutra, and it's one of my favorite uh, passages, so I'm just going to, I think it's relevant here, so let me read it. However many beings there are, and whatever realms of being might exist, whether they are born from an egg or born from a womb, born from the water or born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, in whatever conceivable realm of beings, one might conceive of beings, in the realm of complete nirvana, I vow to liberate them all. And though I liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. You know, as I, you know, I find very, very slowly as I work with my different masks, angel masks and demon masks and ordinary person masks, very slowly I start to become more and more comfortable with myself. And 
necessarily more and more comfortable with other people. You know, it seems that slowly there's an experience of just basic warmth. And it's very earthy, very grounded. I have maybe uh, less desire to escape from the human realm, uh, whether it's by food, shopping, TV, or by more, you know, refined uh, entertainments like, uh, you know, sublime meditative states or heroic acts of virtue. Or more, it's, it's just a pleasure just to, uh, to aspire to be a decent human being. You know, a mensch. Uh, just to day, enjoy the, the days growing shorter, the wind getting a little bit colder as the season turns. Maybe every once in a while help other people a little bit. As I was trying to think about how to um, to bring this to an end, I, I guess I feel that the best way is just to go back to the beginning. I just want to repeat that that uh, poem from the Karmapa. Self manifestation, which has never existed as such, is erroneously seen as an object. Through ignorance, self-awareness is mistakenly experienced as I. Through attachment to this duality, we are caught in the conditioned world. May the root of confusion be found. May the root of confusion be found. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.